Welcome back, folks. In this segment of the podcast, we're going to review the relevant research literature and emerging practices on returning injured paramedics after a critical incident or operational stress injury to work following a period of convalescence or medical leave. to draw your attention first to some slices of literature uh, that inform emerging practices on helping paramedics return to work after a critical incident or operational stress injury. There's some uh, very good Canadian research from the University of Toronto, uh, Ryerson Public Health Ontario, uh, that was uh, partly funded by Public Health Ontario and the Temecontra Foundation, um, where, in fact, about 10 years ago, a period of between 2009-2014, one particular research group involving Janice Halpern and Associates looked at those uh, empirical questions that we all had about the benefits of actually taking downtime uh, after an objective critical incident uh, at work that can involve um, serious uh, um, injuries, death, vital signs, absence, uh, suicide deaths, other uh, objective calls that tend to be rather psychologically activating. Um, and in reviewing a number of um, paramedic responses to these where employers have offered varying degrees of time within a shift to decompress, process, or just get caught up on paperwork and other associated organizational responsibilities Nearly 75% of participants who receive that downtime, um, about two-thirds of those folks within that 75%, in fact, found it helpful. 84% of those individuals who took advantage of downtime spent it with peers. And that's where there is some belief, uh, and reasonably so, that some of the transformative functions of interpersonal support really gain its traction. There were some limits to that period of time from work, and it was found that if the amount of time after an objective uh, traumatic adverse call exceeded more than one day, it became less effective. So there were optimal periods of downtime from around 30 minutes towards an end of a shift, depending on the magnitude of the index trauma and the paramedic's response to that. But anything beyond that which was the conventional wisdom prior to this study, uh, showed that it lost, it lost, in fact, a lot of its um, um, restorative value. The relative and uh, associative findings uh, with these research studies around this period of time, 2009 through 2014, also came up with some rather amusing but salient findings that paramedics uh, essentially do have difficulty asking for help. Um, tied to that is, uh, which even complicates that finding more, is that supervisors were very reluctant to provide it. And this may be born out of that age-old concern of adhering to personnel privacy, respecting private health information, which generally um, made it a disincentive or a concern of first-line supervisors and even senior leaders to talk frankly about members' responses to their workplace adversity, checking on their progress in a supportive and adaptive way, 
Um, those lessons learned from kindergarten when we're told to respect one another, turn-taking, etc., um, just seem to be missing. And in that level of um, protection of injured workers' uh, health information, we may have overcorrected uh, the need for um, checking in on one another. And that was born out of a great deal of research that informed the Mental Health Commission of Canada's uh, R2MR programming that we, we do have um, a value-based reason to check in with our colleagues where we spend a great deal of time with one another in a supportive and respectful capacity. The final finding of these, uh, these research um, studies that are linked uh, around this time was that it was unclear what did constitute effective support. And that's probably going to be an ongoing um, uh, review of practices uh, within the industry. The, the final comment on this really terrific research out of the University of Toronto and affiliated sites uh, has to do with their development of paramedic and supervisor cards. This is the knowledge translation, the kit uh, that goes with the research outcomes um, where helpful guidance was provided um, to prompt or remind within, a, within two different time points, a post-critical incident and then two days later, that there was an obligation and important necessity by supervisors to check in with the member. And if we lost sight of it, it may send the mixed message that perhaps the affected member uh, may not be treated seriously or uh, the fair and due concern that is necessary. So they've actually developed uh, paramedic flashcards, just quick reminders of what to do and the red flags after the incident. They have some corresponding supervisor cards that also encourage um, cues of what to listen for and how to um, help an injured worker um, return to a, a dignified, meaningful work practices afterwards. So I would encourage any of you listening to this podcast to simply do a quick search of, the, of these, these findings. And if you were to write the authors, um, I'm sure that uh, they may be available um, at this time, even though it's years after the original research was disseminated. Thank you. folks. During this segment, we're going to spend some time looking at return to work planning, and we're going to look at it from each perspective, including the employer, the employee, or the affected injured member, as well as the insurer, which in most cases among EMS professionals in Ontario is the Workplace Safety Insurance Board. The work, WSIB, in fact, charts out what are the prerequisite requirements for suitable return to work planning and it involves four major components. The first one is establishing a return to work goal. The second are the actions and activities required to achieve that return to work goal. The third component of the plan is the timeframes for achieving these goals and the final component are the healthcare needs. WSIB has taken great efforts to provide some guidance on each of these domains as they lead to a successful work reentry that is dignified, provides meaningful work, and simultaneously protects the best interests of the member and the employer.
with the first domain of the return to work goal, WSIB, um, in fact, states the following. The primary goal of return to work planning is to return the worker to work that is both suitable and available. Suitable work is safe and productive, consistent with the worker's functional abilities, and to the extent possible, restores the worker's pre-injury earnings. Ideally, the worker will return to their pre-injury job with accommodations if required. However, at times it may be necessary to explore temporary alternate uh, suitable work while the injured or ill worker recovers. The second component are the actions and activities required to achieve the return to work goal. WSIB identifies that the plan should identify the responsibilities of the worker, the supervisor or manager, treating health professionals, union representative or association, and any other co-workers who will be assisting in this role, whether they are designated training officers or peer support workers. The plan should lay out in simple terms the specific activities and accommodations that are required to achieve the return to work goal and the individuals responsible for those actions. The third component are the time frames for achieving these goals. We know generally that if we don't um, operationalize goals in terms of pragmatic and practical terms with time frames, they tend to get lost. According to WSIB, they identify that these will provide a yardstick to measure the worker's progress. It is important that the plan has a beginning and an end. An accommodation such as graduated work is a means to achieve a return to pre-injury work and is not an end in itself. WSIB goes on to add that there should be an assurance to include a clear definition of what is considered progress. For example, the worker can be <clears throat> five hours a day um, over three weeks of the plan, or the worker can assume specific tax by week five of the plan. In this way, we can map out progress and recovery, and it is a bit of a moving target because plans aren't written in stone based on available data and feedback, it would inform adjusting these goals. And when we work with injured workers who are very concerned about reaching milestones on time, it is very fair to warn them that it's an aspirational goal. It is the best aims or objectives to reach these goals. And there should be some reasonable behavioral metrics or performance data to support that the worker is achieving them. The final domain that WSIB speaks to, and it's not in terms of order of priority or necessity, and the final domain speaks to the healthcare needs, ongoing healthcare needs of the injured worker. Uh, and it stipulates that in cases where the worker is attending health or medical appointments during work hours, these visits must be coordinated with the requirement of the proposed return to work plan. Coworkers who will be impacted by these appointments should also, with the worker's permission, be advised. And this, again, is that notion of mutual respectfulness and that all actions in becoming injured, convalescence or recovery, rehabilitation, and then exposure-based gradual return to work plans, which is a tall order in itself, that amongst those domains, um, the injured worker uh, needs to be respectful that they um, will be causing some changes in the regular work practices from their employer. The employer will need to respect that the employer uh, has challenges and perhaps confidence issues in executing to their former level of proficiencies. 
And finally, from WSIB, while they obey um, the general rubric of not demanding or um, mandating that the employer act a certain way, it's always the employer's um, prerogative to manage as they see fit, they also have to ensure the uh, health and rights of that individual within the Accommodations and Disability Act and Human Rights to make sure that fair practices um, are paramount. Thank you. Prior to reviewing specific considerations in regard to providing exposure-based protocols for returning members, I just want to review one other more recent snippet of literature from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration of the United States. Their seminal study of May 2018, uh, titled First Responders, Behavioral Health Concerns, Emergency Response and Trauma, uh, did a very effective job at overviewing a number of important considerations. And I just want to um, draw a few of their conclusions and overall recommendations about the impact of depression, stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance misuse, and the potential for suicide ideation developing among members who've been affected by operational stress injuries. A result of their uh, comprehensive literature review made a few broad sweeping recommendations. One of them was that among protective factors during a disaster for first responders, social support appears to be important, particularly organizational support in terms of good relationships with leaders and coworkers. Brooks and colleagues found that supportive, approachable leaders and camaraderie among responders helped with first responders' psychological well-being. That study was replicated in 2016 from uh, the original findings of 2015. Social support was also associated with reduced risks of behavioral health problems, while poor relationships with coworkers and dissatisfaction with supervisors predicted the onset and maintenance of PTSD symptoms. So there's a very powerful opportunity here to provide a welcoming, supportive, and structured return to work framework that involves the direct partnering of the affected worker, of the organization, of their uh, treatment provider and uh, WSIB or their um, extended health insurer. I'm just going to draw your attention finally to their uh, broad uh, sweeping conclusions uh, and then we'll continue to advance the specific considerations of providing a reasonable exposure-based um, graduating uh, confidence-inspiring protocol for returning members. So here are their, their conclusions. First responders are always at the forefront of each incident or disaster and they ensure the safety and well-being in the population. They are, however, at great danger of being exposed to potentially traumatic situations that pose risk of harm to them and other people under their care. This constitutes a great deal of the behavioral health of first responders, putting them at risk for stress, PTSD, depression, substance abuse, suicidal ideation, and attempts. Both natural and technological disasters were found to be associated with increased risks in these three conditions, as were factors such as resiliency, trust in self, and in the team, the duration of the, the difficult call or the disaster, one's individual coping style, as well as the post-disaster mental health support. And among those variables cited in this important study, there is um, ability from 
each respective organization to at least acknowledge um, each of these considerations. One is the, the member's response to the traumatic condition, the, the actual duration of the time on the disaster scene, how that individual copes in general with other stressors, pressure points, etc., and the post-disaster mental health support. If those are reviewed constructively and with the partnering of the injured member, and there is some um, organizational or operational debrief on how that transpired, um, building in the necessary supports with a reasonable return-to-work plan, there is far more um, consideration uh, for that member to uh, thrive upon returning to work. Here, here's the final paragraph from the SAM HSA conclusions. To improve the behavioral health of the first responders, a cooperative effort is needed between organizational leadership and coworkers to establish a work environment that provides adequate training and ensures the resiliency and health of first responders by protecting them from overwork and excessive stress and supporting them in seeking help when needed. First responders carry the weight of their own safety and well-being, as well as those they serve, and thus making programmatic changes to educate them, offer them support, protect their health and well-being, would reduce the risk of burnout, fatigue, and other behavioral health issues associated with being overworked, uncertain, or stressed. Behavioral and public health agencies can help prevent or alleviate behavioral health issues in first responders through preventative training, such as R2MR, on resiliency and behavioral health prior to disasters or other uh, tragic call events, interventions to address burnout, peer support programs. As noted, such efforts and programs are a cultural shift in these fields and um, who have historically dealt with disastrous and traumatic experiences stoically and in private. Broadening these out and um, preventing maladaptive techniques such as substance misuse um, greatly encourages and supports that member to return to a normal level of worker proficiency. So again, this is we, we, we chronicled earlier Canadian studies from 2011 through 2014. We're looking at more uh, broad policy uh, from um, uh, 2018 and the uh, SAM HSA study, um, which leads us on firmer ground to actually uh, use um, training officers, peer support members, and concerned others to really help uh, members feel much more secure crossing the threshold as they return to work. Thank you. Well, hi again, folks. In this section of the podcast on returning injured paramedics and first responders back to work, uh, we're going to look at some common reactions to most uh, workplace adversity and frank trauma. And then we're going to map that onto um, an in vivo or real-life exposure-based hierarchy um, that will give you folks a bit of guidance on how to partner with the affected member as well as their community treatment provider on selecting the individualized uh, treatment response hierarchy. So we'll start first with the common reactions to trauma. These, in fact, make up the, the major features of post-traumatic stress disorder or other persisting anxiety disorders relating to workplace stressors. And typically, uh, folks tend to um, have a constellation of features that reflect the symptomatology. Notably, there's intense fear, terror, 
even horror and or helplessness with the actual index traumatic work-related event. There can be re-experiencing or flashbacks that may be spontaneous or unprompted, and they can have activating triggers. Uh, and that's where we're going to spend a lot more um, of this segment of the podcast talking about moving from the inventory of triggers and activating events to um, shaping behavior and starting the habituation process whereby the worker starts to, what I call, pick low-hanging fruit and tackle confidence-rebuilding aspects of work in a systematic and progressively more involved manner so that they develop that confidence and competence in um, better adapting to um, reminders of that trauma. Other associated common reactions to trauma involve hyperarousal or hypervigilance, always being on guard, uh, panning areas uh, with your head uh, on, a, on a swivel or on a pivot looking for signs of danger that uh, may routinely uh, be safe in most other circumstances. There's also a numbing or dissociation, increased maladaptive coping, usually through substance misuse, or excessive preoccupations with gambling, uh, gaming, uh, and other uh, behaviors that uh, tend to become the center focus of one's uh, experiences rather than a peripheral, almost recreational um, pastime. Um, and then we'll, uh, we can also notice that the common reactions involve avoidance of the, the specific trauma-related stimuli, um, and this can lead to feelings of hopelessness and corresponding low mood. So these are typically what folks do uh, respond to in their work world after uh, coming against workplace adversity. I always tell folks that I work with primarily that these um, overcorrections to a very adaptive and neurological response of making very clear and aware to people affected by dangerous situations that there are enduring symptoms that are going to protect a person from engaging in these behaviors or seeing uh, tremendous adversity. And that short-term facility that we all have, uh, which is adaptive in the short term, can become more pathological and present more problems almost as a jammed-on circuit uh, that overcorrects the need to be so vigilant um, or symptomatic just with the mere thought of these prior experiences, which at, which at later points in time obviously shouldn't have the same valence or effect on members. This ultimately contributes to avoidance. And avoidance is of paramount importance when helping members return to work. And this is where, through conversation as a peer support member, through um, compassionate and empathetic understanding as a leader, there can be a lot more awareness to the principal factors that prevent someone from doing their work safely and, and, and reasonably. Um, and this can lead to such physiological stress responses of uh, an enduring flight or fight or freeze response, physiological activation, emotional uh, hypersensitivity, and cognitive changes, uh, difficulty processing information, challenges with concentration and executive function um, that become more entrenched with more avoidant behaviors. So of paramount important 
uh, importance in helping folks uh, craft out a hierarchy that they can slowly matriculate from easier um, stressors that aren't as threatening to things that seem almost impossible for the member to overcome, which may be visiting the, uh, the site of the traumatic event, uh, being around other um, reminders such as um, uh, tones uh, and calls, radio chatter, uh, banter amongst colleagues, which on an everyday basis seems quite normal, um, but after traumatic injury uh, seems insurmountable. So in crafting the in vivo exposure, otherwise known as the real-life exposures with the member, again, really clear communication and understanding as to what are the ongoing barriers for that member safely crossing the threshold and returning to work is going to be important, and that will take time. And most of the time that you actually sit down with a colleague who's been affected by their work and you start showing an interest in a safe uh, and respectful manner, you're going to get an awful lot of relief that that finally your colleague is sharing with someone who seems to be knowledgeable. And there's some understanding which promotes more adaptations, dialogue, and even habituation to talking about how bad the event is. Over time, these exposures extinguish or habituate those strong physiological responses, the fight-or-flight response, just to the mere thought of doing these work taskings again, become softened, and they get perspective of what was important and life-altering at that point in time, distally changes over time to acceptance that I can safely return to my work even if there is um, subsequent uh, uh, horrific accidents or workplace uh, adversity um, because the principal original trauma has been dealt with. And there have been dismantling studies that look at um, these types of approaches and they actually provide a layer of protective value to subsequent traumas simply by having that colleague or member face the trauma in a supportive way, knowing that they're supported by the insurer, the employer, etc., uh, can really bring back and accelerate um, amount of recovery. So in trying to undo the overlearning that happens with traumatic symptoms and enduring post-traumatic symptoms or anxiety, there, the, the main target is to prevent the overgeneralizing of one stimulus that was very important that showed uh, kind of the worst of um, tragedy or humanity and that the majority of the time our lives are rather predictable and in that predictability we can safely and effectively navigate our very critical work functions. So what we're trying to embody or instill in our, in our colleagues who've been affected by work is that not all work scenes are highly dangerous and unsafe. Not all people are dangerous. Not all children elderly or, or everyday citizens will die that we come into contact with. And there seems to be a cognitive overrepresentation uh, or overestimation of that probability that in practical terms really takes direct counter evidence through a lot of repetitive approaching of those fearful stimulus so that the person believes they won't fall to pieces.
and that's exactly what you can do to facilitate that as a peer support member. So quite briefly then, we want the exposure to be controlled, we want it to be systematic, and we want to have it partnered, if not even led, by our affected colleague that they, there is an understanding that this is in their best interest, that this is the state of the art in recovery, in psychological, behavioral, and social recovery from um, workplace adversity, but it will take a bit of time. Regular exposures are crucial, daily if possible, um, and uh, for a minimum amount of time without a uh, escape avoidant response. So the escape avoidance response is if you set out to visit a um, workplace activity with your returning to work member, and in fact, when, when you set out to do that, uh, the person feels some trepidation or regular fear or anxiety about doing that, and they, they bolt, they run, they leave the situation. It, it can actually embolden one's fearfulness. And that's why the, the biggest challenge to folks recovering from traumatic adversity is having the wherewithal to know if they stay with the simulated uh, in vivo exposure, if you're just visiting a station, a substation, a base, or even a hospital base, that there, you should expect to have some tremulousness, some, some physiological hyperarousal because you care. And once that abates, once it reduces by 50%, and I know it's a bit arbitrary, somewhat subjective, the metric isn't perfect, we call these subjective units of distress or SUDs, once that drops by half the value, then the person should celebrate and you should encourage celebrating that now their physiology is learning that they can tolerate this new safe exposure to formally unsafe circumstances. And if the physiological arousal peaks at a certain level, and then by simply staying with the new hierarchy situation, it drops by 50%, that signals that your client, your colleague, your, your concerned partner is actually on a recovery trajectory, that now their physiology is starting to relearn and, and be retrained to the reality that they can safely expose something that was terribly dangerous in the past. Once that uh, is um, reliably worked through and the member feels that they can tolerate sitting in these approached aspects to the primary targeted stimulus, then you can move on to the next hierarchy. An example might be watching a stationary truck or ambulance or squad car and then um, sitting with it until the physiological arousal stops by 50%, and then moving on to something else. With repeated exposures, um, the activation level diminishes, and this is the first pragmatic and practical way that the member is feeling some improvements. Briefly, I want to just go through one last uh, kind of example of an exposure hierarchy and how we pick the so-called low-hanging fruit and try and work our way to the more prominent index trauma. Uh, it can be something as simple as sitting down as a peer support member or a concerned other person with your colleague, viewing photos, videos of the ambulance, truck, or car, members in uniform, other activating um, events. Standing outside of the office, of the station, of the workplace, visiting the inside, 
preparing the member that they may have um, colleagues who are unaware uh, of their absence and they may, they may need some prompts, a bit of a rehearsal of what the communication will be. Wearing a, one's uniform at home, looking outside, um, uh, visiting stationary ambulances and then moving to uh, driving third where possible. Uh, and we'll talk, we'll talk about that in more detail in terms of um, the tricky issues in, the, in one of the next uh, following segments. Sitting in the passenger seat, sitting in the back of the ambulance, working with equipment, simulating these uh, processes, running through protocols, all in the absence of, of real critical work practices, but something that would approximate that. Riding as a passenger in a moving ambulance, truck, car, no sirens, no lights, and then if there is the wherewithal from the employer to provide that, or the field training officer, or using a supervisor's vehicle that is off-duty, then um, your colleague who has been affected by their work can really gain traction on knowing um, that they do have the um, wherewithal and the existing prof uh, work skills and proficiencies to do their work. So we'll review uh, in, a, in more detail in the following segment some of the uh, important considerations of carrying out an exposure hierarchy, but those are the essential nuts and bolts that we'll elaborate in more detail. Thank you. For this final segment on effectively bringing back injured workers from convalescence or medical leaves uh, responsibly back into a graduated return to work program, we want to address some tricky issues. And some of them are more common sense, but again, knowledge and information is power. And just having the wherewithal to know that there are some more adaptive, encouraging, and positive ways to support a colleague returning to work. Uh, and there are probably some... Um, perhaps archaic considerations, which, which we've already alluded to in this podcast, that typically reflect one's um, cautiousness or over-cautiousness about relating to people we care about. And that may uh, dovetail on this notion of never talking about people's um, uh, personal life, never talking about their overall or general health and wellness. And we've learned uh, progressively in the last several years uh, that it is very fair out of genuine concern, to show uh, respectful boundaries on inquiring about people's private medical health histories. But again, once that door is open and that person has offered or requires accommodations at work or, or medical restrictions, it's very, very fair um, to support those. And naturally, in that flow of supporting one's return to work and respective accommodations, that there's going to be an interchange. There's going to be some regular conversation about what had happened, about um, how someone might have become affected, and what we can all do to support um, improved um, work habits going forward. So um, what I've done is I've compiled a little bit of a short list of uh, feedback from uh, first responders, notably EMS professionals, who are embarking on facilitated return to work initiatives such as these, and uh, they've already, uh, through trial and error, learned what not to do. And, um, and I want to give you a bit of an inventory. And this is a bit of a replay from one of the earlier segments when we talked about the research out of the University of Toronto and uh, the uh, group developing these flashcards or research projects. Um, 
recall that the University of Toronto researchers, uh, part of their knowledge transfer, or KT, developed paramedic flashcards, which were little prompts or reminders on uh, what to do, what are some of the red flags or cautions. Um, and they simultaneously developed some supervisor cards, which again prompt the member uh, to cover important considerations after an acute stress response. Um, and again, those are available in all likelihood at this point in time by contracting, contacting the authors of those studies, which we alluded to in the, in the um, previous segment. Um, so, so drawing on what are good practices uh, in, in uh, respectfulness and respectful boundaries, uh, as well as this inventory that I've uh, gotten um, more recently from um, uh, individuals working in paramedicine who have learned that there's a, a great way and a not-so-great way of um, helping people return to work. So I, I'm going to just cull from those uh, what is probably most appropriate in considering the exposure hierarchy, uh, and this way you, you have better uh, chances of setting the stage for the partnering of your, the healthcare provider, the affected individual, um, your, your colleague, yourself, on what are those uh, milestones in recovery that you could chart out and meaningfully gain traction on the symptoms related to the index trauma. Um, so here, here goes, here are some of the uh, concerns and that is uh, very often a well-intended peer support member or training officer or field training officer will bring a paramedic back to work and they will walk through a base uh, or any work area for that matter and very few other people are aware that that individual is coming back and that awkwardness that is uh, not so unusual on a day-to-day -day basis for most people for the person who may have been off for a prolonged amount of time seems like an eternity and the simplest way of circumventing that is to have clear communication amongst the leadership team that we are expecting a return to work from one of our colleagues and that frontline paramedic, constable, uh, uh, firefighter, whatever the case may be, um, will be expected to arrive on this date. They will be in and out of the facilities as they reacclimate themselves to their duties and we should welcome them. We should expect uh, them coming and we should be prepared to uh, offer a genuine uh, welcoming uh, with uh, some understanding that they have been off and that we're here to support them returning. And if we keep it on those most simple terms, beyond that, most things feel much more natural because the leaders that I've spoken to, um, they have tremendous social acumen. They're very reasonable people. And for all intents and purposes, they want junior colleagues to really thrive. So it's certainly not malicious um, or malevolent, it's usually taken by surprise that they're not fully uh, prepared or committed to avail the resources when um, an occupational therapist, a psychotherapist, a, a psychologist, a peer member brings them back across the threshold uh, that they're ready to welcome them and um, provide whatever is medically necessary for them um, to um, regain the highest proficiencies of their former work role. And again, this is, with, this, is, this is consistent with the legislation of the presumptive clause of the um, WSIB in Ontario, 
that there is an obligation by the employer to optimize that person's work functions and th the first step in doing so is bringing people reasonably back to work. So we want to try and avoid prying into the uh, nuts and bolts of what they did about the specific diagnoses, who they saw for treatment, what medications they might be on. Those are out of bounds. And unless, strangely, that is volunteered directly by the returning member, there's really no merit in knowing about the nitty-gritty. What is important is they've now uh, matriculated to the point where they can safely come into the station, but it's probably far from them feeling confident that they can resume their fulsome duties. So again, using those basic rules of kindergarten about being respectful and taking our turn and uh, being gracious, um, which everyone at this point in their career is very adept at, just better aligning that a member is turning, returning at a certain time and everyone is aware of this, whether there is a, a tactful um, a bulletin uh, celebrating that this member is coming back, the same as we would with someone perhaps who's been on a maternity or paternity leave, uh, the same applies. Um, and even though it may seem like it's drawing unwanted attention to the returning member, in fact, it is acknowledging that we're all here to support one another. Uh, other things that we've learned that have not gone well um, would be that um, um, what, what ends up happening is the, um, there's, there's misunderstanding or misdirection as to what people are actually communicating. And, and again, if, if you've ever been affected by a tra traumatic adversity, the possibility of misjudging or paying too much attention to factors that were life-altering um, may influence this misdirection of what people are um, conveying. And, and I know it sounds a bit cryptic or odd, but I'll give you a practical example. If, if someone returns from work and they've been off for a very long period of time, and now they um, are very nervous about coming back, they cross the threshold and people do the right thing. They welcome the member, they, they are aware that they're coming back and they're gonna be in a less than fulsome capacity for the next period of time. But then they go in an associated area and they're laughing and cajoling or they're um, talking about uh, other people who aren't doing well. The messaging is unbelievably mixed and confusing to that member who is really hanging on for dear life to put about a brave and professional face. So it's not just what is said, it's, it's what isn't said. And it is raising the standards to the acceptable norm of professional decorum and acumen that that member knows that they are respected as well. So again, if inadvertently people are laughing about something they watched on television the night before, the misperception to the returning member is that it is directed at them. And, and that might be enough to set that person off into a bit of a tailspin, exacerbation of their symptoms, and at its worst, another absence from work. So again, it's not just the words that we say, it's the impression we leave people with, how they feel. The famous quote from Maya Angelou. Besides that, um, if, if, again, the standard is of respectfulness and decorum, um, and there is a joke, made, it should be included by everyone. And in this regard, um, members know that we're laughing not at the expense of them, but in fact, uh, because we, we use humor to cope at times. 
Um, other things that can um, derail or sideline the, the, the overall recovery and milestones in the hierarchy of exposure uh, can be changes in the plan that are inadvertent. So if the uh, peer support member who's charged with following and assisting this individual, whether it's a field training officer or a concerned other or, or, or a genuine peer support member, let's say they get waylaid or unable to fulfill their duties, um, that lack of consistency can be um, a bit um, uh, challenging for the member who's, who's, again, very trepidatious about change uh, and returning to something that was life-altering and very damaging to them. So we want as much consistency as possible, and minimally there should be some coaching to the affected member who's returning to work that there may be changes, there may be unanticipated uh, deviations from what we're plotting forward on and that to be expected. So again, some reasonable preparation uh, with the returning member that we're going to endeavor to respect them, we're going to keep their health information private, uh, but we do acknowledge that there may have some specific ongoing health needs or accommodations that we want to be mindful of and respectful toward. Um, then, then we're already at a, a position of, of strength in, in helping one another. The, the failings or provis uh, provisions or positions of weakness tend to emerge when people um, uh, make light of um, or may even banter that now it must be so nice to come back for very short shifts intermittently. You must have all this time on your hand. And it's, it's an it's a, uh, innocuous uh, enough remark such as that that, again, can really derail the best, the best laid plans. And, and rather than uh, using um, humor of this sort, it would be more congratulatory or celebratory. It's great to have you back. And we're, we're really looking forward to you uh, being up to your full uh, responsibilities again um, because, because we have so much important and valued work going on. So again, there, there's subtleties. And in a, in a regular work world, we don't have to walk on eggshells or tiptoe around people. Um, people in this field by nature are typically very hardy and stoic anyway, but when we are coming from a position of perceived weakness, disadvantage, or disability, then, then again, we owe it to our colleagues to just up our level of respectfulness um, to know that we are concerned, we care, and we're not going to make fun of the process. So I know it sounds like common sense, and I know that the majority of people, the majority of time, are respectful genuinely concerned and are really motivated to see our colleagues succeed, uh, again, it can be just a reminder as the person crosses the threshold, let's put forth our best behavior. I'm going to conclude these tricky issues with a, a little anecdote, um, and, and it's not lengthy, but it may illustrate this point. Um, when I would work in institutions amongst an interdisciplinary team, um, and uh, people were very um, um, proficient, having a lot of subject matter expertise across disciplines, the best productive meetings we had was when we had a student, a resident, or a clerk present. And uh, the simple reason for that, if you haven't already figured that out, is because it ratcheted up everyone's level of professionalism because we wanted to impress upon the student that health matters and that people who are unhealthy um, matter even more. So our behavior, our professional rapport, uh, the way we acted with one another, 
was far superior when we were mentoring or guiding students or junior associates. And that recognition led everyone to believe that in respect of our patients in an ongoing way, that we should honor just as if we're uh, on display, as if we're teaching people. If there is a no windows in our office and the whole world can see us, uh, these are the expectations as the professionals we are. So I'm going to leave you with that story in terms of um, uh, our members deserving um, the uh, respectfulness that uh, we give on a daily basis. Subtle changes from that respectfulness can have massive ripple effects and can be very um, uh, disabling to someone who's trying their best. Um, and other than that, I'm happy to talk more on this uh, subject in subsequent podcasts. And you can always reach out to me uh, at my email, charles.g dot nelson, N-E-L-S-O-N, at gmail.com. Thank you so very much for your time.